All right, I'm Jerry Weaver. I'm an alcoholic. Jerry. I think that's, can you hear me? Yeah. All right. My Friday is July the 2nd, 1989. I uh, have a home group. My home group is a group called There's a Solution. We meet on Thursdays, Tuesdays and Thursdays in Cary, North Carolina. Good group of alcoholics and honest. They wrote a chapter about us in the big book. Uh, <laughs> jokes there to see if I read the book. The, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's good to laugh this morning and uh, good, to, uh, good to be sober, good to be free. Carl, thanks for, uh, for the invite and for the hospitality. What a, what a deal this morning. A um, little unusual for this many people to get together this early in the morning and, and I guess celebrate Alcoholics Anonymous and gratitude. I was, um, it, when, the, when people were reading it, it just hit me. I can remember many, many Sunday mornings, me and uh, one of my uncles, we used to ride the roads and, and run and party, and he had this old rundown house that was in a couple towns over from where we actually lived, and we would go there and party. And many, many mornings we would we would watch the sunrise on Sunday morning, and you know, been out two or three days drinking, and I would have that that feeling that just depressed, impending feeling of doom come over me because I'd, I'd lied to my wife and to my parents about what I was doing and where I was at. And now I'm thinking of other lies to tell people and to, to tell her. And um, just an awful, awful feeling of having to, to play those games and work those angles and, you know, just one lie after another. And that... It was uh, basically what that would happen. What would happen is that would lead to more drinking, and then I wouldn't even come home and have to explain it. I would just you know, run off for a couple more days. Um, but you know, this morning I'm not that way. I'm free. I'm, I'm grateful to uh, to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful to be sober, and my uh, you know my life has been has literally has been transformed from dark to light, and from you know from fear to fear to faith, and. That's because of just some simple, simple actions that that I was I was taught to take as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm a guy that uh, I've been sober since I I, I, I was 12 step by a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in a detox, with no uh, no knowledge of what the 12 steps were, no knowledge of what alcoholism was. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I I, I knew why I was there, but I I really didn't know what was wrong with me. And a guy came in on a Sunday morning, much like this morning, and uh, he made a 12-step call on me. And I had never heard anything like that. Guy just came in, and it was very much different than uh, the psychiatrist and the first sergeant and the parents and the counselor and the neighbor and the deputy <laughs> sheriff. He, he, um, he, he just talked about himself. He talked about how he drank, and he talked about things that he did, and, and I... I identified with what he was telling me, and it was—I guess we call that the language of the heart now, called anonymous. But he didn't hit me with a bunch of funny slogans and a bunch of throwaway words and a, a, a bunch of nonsense. He just hit me with what happened to him and about how he drank and, and, and what he did and how he felt, and I identified. I knew that whatever he was talking about, that I had that, and. 
I've been sober ever since. And I don't want to imply that my life has been, you'll find out here in a little while, that my life has been perfect and I've felt good all the time. But I've been sober ever since. That guy took time out of his schedule on a Sunday morning to come talk to, to me. It was a classic 12-step call. I often wonder what would have happened if he'd have said no or if he'd have gone to the soccer game or gone off to church or went to go watch somebody play basketball or go to the golf course. He didn't do any of that. Um, he didn't try to log in and talk to me on Zoom. He just, he just rolled into the detox and took time away from his family and, and talked to me. And, you know, it, it changed my life. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't say that to, to, to say that, that, you know, that you have to, that if you relapse, you've done something wrong. But what I'm telling, what I'm saying is that what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous has been permanent. And I found power here not only to keep me sober, but to help me to, to, to operate in a world that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me and where I still some, sometimes feel full of fear and feel separated from people. But the principles and the power and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous help me operate in the world without drinking. I believe that's available to anybody that's, that's willing to give up and uh, spend a little same effort that they spend into drinking and into, into staying sober. I, uh, and I've been able to recreate my life. And alcoholics now, just like the doctor, uh, Doctor Silkworth said in Doctor's Pain, that that I'm not rebuilding my life or trying to remodel the whole life or rearrange it. I've been given a, a completely new way to recreate my life, and that's what's happened to me. I uh, took my first drink when I was 12, and I um, I grew up in a family that a lot of drinking took place, a lot of a lot of hell raising and partying and. Um, people just did it, and it was like it wasn't a big deal. I mean, there was no, never like any talk of well, you ought to slow down or stop. People just, I mean, they just, they drank, got into trouble, got out of trouble, did well for a little while, drank again. I mean, it was just something that, that they did, but it scared me when I saw my dad and my uncle, grandparents drinking and getting into trouble and fighting and I never thought that I was going to do that. I can remember, matter of fact, I can remember thinking, man, I'm not going to be that way. And now, I had, I, looking back on it, my, I didn't know my, my parents would have been considered pretty cool, I guess. The, the, we lived in a, in a little house in Springfield, Virginia, and had a basement, and there was this cool bar down there, and the, red, the, the blue, uh, black lights, and those velvet posters, <laughs> and it had beads in the doorways, and all that stuff. and. My dad had a, uh, yeah, you, you've had some of those black lights? <laughs> those velvet posters that would glow in the dark and things were cool. The, uh, we should bring them back. <laughs> and the, uh, and my dad had a big old afro and pork chop sideburns and, <laughs> He was a, he was you know he was a cool he was a cool dude. He had tattoos and in the seventies not everybody had tattoos. I mean the, we got babies born with tattoos nowadays. <laughs> he, he had uh, in the seventies not you know, if you had tattoos you'd have been in jail with the navy or or a biker gang and I, I think he'd been in all three. The, uh, but he had a devil on one arm and a tiger on the other arm and he had a, a one here that said mom, and then he had one here that had a lady's name that wasn't my mom. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, 
uh, I don't think anyone ever asked him who it was. They were afraid to, but um, they'd have these parties. And boy, it would be exciting when it started, but it would end. You know, if somebody would mess with somebody's girl or they would say something, and there'd be a fight or a gun would go off in the house and people would have, somebody would leave and get, you know, get pulled over or whatever and then somebody would go get them out of jail and they'd come back partying. It was like, it was just, it was, it was fun and chaotic and scary all at, at the same time. And, you know, the next morning nobody would like wake up and nobody would say anything about it. It was like, it was just like nothing happened. <laughs> and... So I saw that, and I, I didn't. I didn't think I'd ever drink. Not long after thinking that, I was in the basement of a of a neighbor's house, and we started drinking. I was 12 years old. I was a guy that, like a lot of people I've heard, I, I was full of fear. I was scared to death. I was confused. Didn't completely understand or know what all that meant. But I just felt, you know, I guess the way to put it, I was just disconnected from people and from the world. And I also had this just noise and nonsense going on in my mind telling me all kinds of stuff that I know now was not was not true and I got that old granddad 100 proof in me at the age of 12 and it, it, it all that went away it, all that fear doubt and confusion just disappeared it gave me power made me feel like I was the king and I can remember that night just like it's right now next morning woke up in a pile of vomit couldn't remember everything that happened later on in end of the evening and was sick as a dog, and the first thought in my mind was, my God, I gotta do that again. I mean, there was just no, there was no swearing it off or saying I'm not gonna do it. it I mean, it, it did for me what I couldn't do for myself. It was, it was magical. And the next, it was either the next day or two days later, I started drinking again. I, I drank some more of that whiskey, and the same thing happened. It, it, I had a spiritual experience. And the I didn't get sick. And so basically what happened from that I mean from that point on was I mean I I wouldn't have known these words, but I basically found the solution. I mean I found the thing that, that made me feel right. I found the thing that removed all that fear that I had. I found the thing that made me feel less than everybody else. And it was uh, it was incredible. I don't believe I was an alcoholic at the age of 12. I don't believe I was suffering from any kind of a disease. I, I just I was just a young kid that, that was you know, didn't know how to operate, and the, the liquor fixed that. And I'm a guy that loved drinking. I mean, I loved what it did for me. I loved the, I loved the way it made me feel. I loved the things that it allowed me to do. I'm not one of those guys that that my my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking. That's nonsense. I mean, I just and I always, when I think about that, I think about, I mean, I'm a teenager and I was in the pool with this girl named Kim Isaac. We were drunk in Billy Goats. And it was a, better than the day I'm having today. I mean, it was. I don't know how you could say that. I mean, it was like, it's pretty, it's pretty strong. I mean, and I loved it. I don't, I mean, I loved everything it did for me. And what happened was, I'm also not a guy that's got to drink to get in trouble. You'll hear that in AA, that every time I drank, I didn't get in trouble, but every time I got in trouble, I was drinking. That's not true for me. I'll, I mean, I'll get in trouble this afternoon on the way home doing something. I mean, it's something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't associate trouble with drinking. I'm just a guy that trouble 
seems to find me, and I enjoy getting into trouble. Um, and so I got, you know, I got, I got actually expelled and kicked out of two county school systems, Fairfax County and Stafford County in Virginia. They, I was asked to not come back. And um, I didn't realize at the time my family would have to, like, make these moves so I could go to school. And I was sober before I even realized some of that. Now, my dad was, he fooled around with my mom a lot, so he moved around a lot anyway to, to get away from his girlfriends. But, um, <laughs> but I didn't help him help it much. Um, and I got in a bunch of trouble with the law. I ended up going into, into there. I enlisted in the Air Force when I was 17 years old to avoid going to prison. Went to the Air Force with the idea that it was gonna it was gonna teach me some responsibility and some discipline. I was gonna get some education that I was gonna I was gonna do the right thing and prove to people that I could could do something. No one's at this point. No one's saying anything to me about my drinking. They just want me to get my life in order. They're not gonna say anything about my drinking because then they have to look at their drink. And so I go in the Air Force with the idea that that I'm gonna turn things around and it didn't happen. I started drinking. Um, Every opportunity I got, I started blacking out a lot around this time. I'd black out and, and would get into fights with people that I wanted to borrow with, friends, and not remember it. They'd have to tell me the next day. I'd wake up in funny places. I lived in a dorm with about 200 guys, and the, 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 the dorm was situated where two guys would stay in this room, two would stay in this room, and there was a bathroom that four people shared. And one morning I came to and I felt I was cold and I was on the, laying on the bathroom floor, not my bathroom, but somebody else's bathroom in the dorm, and I got some women's clothing on. And uh, I'm like, I don't blacked out. And I, and today that wouldn't be a big deal. In the mid 80s, it was a big deal. It's just not a. You know, the. And so I'm trying to figure out what happened the night before. I'm glad I had a blackout because I don't want to know. And I, 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 no one's no one's ever told me. So I don't know if I was modeling or if I was a pioneer. That's hard to tell. The, um, and but things like that would happen. And I mean, it's 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 funny, but I I, I wouldn't even think anything about it. I just kind of thought it was. It was. It just seemed normal, or like it was okay. And I, uh, I got married. And I'm a, so I'm a guy that thinks if I live with, if I can be with the right person, or live in the right city, or have enough money, or have the right car, and fix all these like outside things, that things are going to be different. And also live in this fantasy world that everybody else was given a good hand at life, and I was given a bad hand. And the. Even with that doubt, then I'd had this other thought that man, one day my ship's just going to come in. Things are going, things are going to be okay. And, and, and I was just, you know, I would search for things. And I got married, thinking that that was going to again was going to teach me to be responsible. I mean, looking back on it, I didn't have any really desire to get married, um, but I did, and it didn't fix anything. Things got, I mean, things got worse after I got married. The, how irresponsible I was really. The, the light kind of got shown on that, and I started having family talking to me about getting my life in order and quitting drinking. Mostly, my father-in-law, my wife's dad, 
and for good reason, looking back on it. But none of those discussions went anywhere. It, drinking just seemed like a solution to me. It did not seem like a problem. It was, it was the state of North Carolina. It was the Air Force. It was the deputy sheriff. It was you people. If you just leave me alone, things would be okay. And, and I, I just kind of lived in this delusion that there was nothing wrong with me, but there was a whole lot wrong with the world. And one morning, I, me and two guys had been out running the roads. Best I can tell, we'd been out for 10 or 11 days drinking and, and partying and doing crazy stuff and started hearing these voices. We, uh, we were leaving um, Coates, North Carolina. We were going to drive to Oxon Hill, Maryland. I knew a, a guy up there, and we were going to rob him. <laughs> Make, it made sense to drive 300 300 miles to rob somebody. Uh, he wouldn't have had that much money, and we could have robbed several people close by without having to And uh, but anyway, we got about eight miles in my, uh, from where we started, and I started hearing these voices like telling me I need to get my life in order. You got to stop this nonsense, and I I. I stopped at a payphone at a convenience store. I had a payphone, and I, I called one of my brothers up. These guys are still in the car. I said, I think I'm making fun of I called my younger brother up, and I told him I needed some help. Now, I don't know what I need help with. At that time, it was not like specifically drinking. It was just this, these voices in my head, and I, I still don't know I'm alcoholic or what that means. And he said, I've been waiting for the call. We've been praying for you. Come on over. And I ditched these two guys, and they were not real happy about it. They were looking forward. I don't think any, I don't think either one of them had been out of the county we were living in. They were, they were excited about going to Oxon Hill. And, uh, the, um, but I went to church with him that morning. And it was January the 1st. Just a great day to make a, you know, New Year's resolution, turn your life over. I had these pants on that were about four inches too short. I had this old silk 70s shirt on with a big disco collar on it. I, I uh, rolled up in the church room that morning, and they looked at me, and I looked at them, and I knew that they were wondering what was going on. And I got up there and cried in front of everybody. People, people prayed with me, and I really felt that just by doing that, that my life was just going to get better. No one told me that. But I really thought just by showing up at a church one morning and having people pray with me that things were just going to like work out. Three days later, I'm drunk. And I'm off to the races. And for the next six months, six months, I, I basically... One failed attempt right after another of trying to get my life in order, trying to quit drinking. I, I, I started reading uh, spiritual books and praying and listening to gospel music, and I'd preach to people at work. And that church would give me this little pocket New Testament, and I'd pull that thing out at work and read it to people and preach to them and tell them they needed to get their lives in order. And, and uh, I would, uh, I'd hold a little session in the break room with people, and then I'd go out to the park after, after trying to heal them. I'd go out to the parking lot and pull a sw- take a swig off that aristocrat vodka and pop, pop a couple of Percocets and go back in there. It was just, uh, just full flight from reality. And I shaved my head. I had just worked with this guy that shaved that 
showed for work one morning. This guy drank like I did. And he, I walked into work one morning, and his head was shaved. And I said, man, what's up with your head? And he said that uh, he'd, hooked, he'd hooked up with his organization that believes that the problem of man stems from their hair. And that they're, when, they, when they shave their hair, it signifies the old man dying or your old ideas dying. And when your hair starts growing back, you're reborn. You get kind of a new way to live or new ideas. I was like, man, I need some of that. I went home and shaved my head. It's like I, I stayed sober for about three days, <laughs> and I see some people in here are trying it. it, 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 it yeah, it won't, if you get more than three days out of it, let me know. I, but I, I really thought that was like some type of a solution, and I, I just, I mean, I, I couldn't stay sober. And I would lie and, you know, make promises and, and you know, just couldn't keep them. And I'd stay gone, you know, I'd make promises of coming straight home and I wouldn't come home, I'd start drinking. And once I started drinking, I just absolutely could not predict what I was going to do or where I was going to go. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't understand what was, what was wrong with me. I got suicidal and I, uh, I, I had a, a couple of, of I guess they were real attempts at, at dying. I mean, I didn't call anybody or write any notes or anything. I had one time I had this dog that had mange, and the vet had given me this poison to kill the mange on this dog. And I had this bright idea that that if it would kill mange, maybe it would kill a man. And I I pulled some of it up to a syringe one night, and after breaking some continual promises to, to my, my wife and my family. Um, I pulled some of it up to a syringe and, pulled, and shot it up my arm. And there wasn't anything dramatic about it. I mean, I just did it as easy as I'd go there and get a cup of coffee. It was just, it just seemed like the, the only way out. And I never thought about maybe calling somebody or talking to somebody or maybe there was a diff- maybe there was something different. And anyway, I, Lay down on the floor there and went away from here for a little while. And ended up in the hospital for about five days. And in the hospital, I can remember thinking, man, I'm never going to go back to living like that after going through this experience. I can remember having conversations with my dad and with one of my brothers about things are different. Um, and I think they believed it. I believed it. I got out of the hospital, and best I can remember, a few days after being out of the hospital, I think it was three days, I started right back drinking. And it was textbook alcoholism, right out of our big book. There's a couple of stories, a guy named Fred and a guy named Jim. I've got one of those sto- I've got a lot of those stories, but, but I'm out of the hospital. This is a good one here. I'm out of the hospital three days from attempting suicide and... and just destroying my family and the idea came into my mind that man if you just drink some beer you'll be okay and I, I left work and that was the, the thought that came to my mind was that if you drink some beer you'll be okay and then another thought came back man you need to go straight home and, and stop that and so I'm, I 
changed my mind. Then another voice came and said, if you just drink some small, the eight ounce beers instead of the bigger ones, that you'll be okay. And nobody gets drunk off of pony beers. <laughs> and I shut that down. Then another thought came, if you eat something before you drink it, you'll be all right. And that was the clincher. There I was stopping at the convenience store and I bought me a spicy Slim Jim and an eight pack of Budweiser Pineapple. I was off to the races. And that's, the book says we've lost the power of choice to drink. And that's what that was. I mean, I'm eight days from drinking, the, the pain and suffering that I caused my family and that I even did to myself. And the promises and all these agreements that I made, none of that came into my mind with sufficient amount of force to stop me from taking the first drink. And that's my main problem. Is my main problem centers in my mind, and I don't have the ability to stay away from the first drink. I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. That's alcoholism. It's not warmth and a divorce and my wife leaving and my dad moved me around a lot as a little kid and all this other stuff. I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. It doesn't matter how much my mommy loves me or the first sergeant threatens me or my wife you know, loves me. None of that stuff will remove that. None of that will help that. And I didn't know that at the time, but I know now that that's, my, that's, that's what my main problem is. And the good news about all that is I've never had the mange. And uh, <laughs> I think it's helped my hair grow too as I've aged. <laughs> I might be on to something with that. The, it's good to laugh, have fun. The, um, I got discharged out of the Air Force not long after that. And I'm, I'm living like an animal. My wife has left. And I suspect she's fooling around with one of my cousins, which wasn't real good. And I, um, I, one morning I left the guy's house to go write a bad check at a grocery store. And while I was walking down the road, um, I mean, I had, I had no plans to get sober. I had no plans to turn my life around. I'd given up on that. I was just, I just accepted the fact that I was going to go into some miserable end, and it was, it was fine. I, I, and I started hearing those voices again. And the voices were saying, man, you just turned 22 years old, your life should be starting, it shouldn't be ending. And that if you don't, if you don't do something, that you're not gonna make it. And I said two things out loud. I said, there's gotta be something better than this. And I said, God, please help me. Again, I don't know what I'm asking help for. I, I don't, I've never heard of AA, the 12 steps. I knew I drank a lot. I used a lot of burger sugar and I, and I hurt people. And um, the next thing I know through a series of, of coincidences, I ended up in a detox that morning. And looking back on it, I, I mean, I believe that I was surrendered. I didn't make that surrender happen. Something surrendered me. The truth was not in me. The, the ability to stop was not in me. And Next thing I know, I mean, I, 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 told the, I told my dad I needed help, and I ended up in this detox. And the guy came in and, and did an assessment on me, and some really funny things started coming out of my mouth. That was the truth. I started telling this guy the truth. I couldn't have done that on my own power. And then the guy from AA came in that same morning and did a 12-step call on me. 
And I've been, like I said, I've been sober ever since. I believe I've gotten better ever since that day. I don't want to imply that my life has been perfect and all that, but I, I have been able to stay sober no matter what life has thrown at me. And I've continued to grow spiritually um, since that moment. And now I wasn't real happy or glad to be where I was at, but I was, I was somewhat relieved to know maybe what was finally wrong with me. And here's what happened to me. I was introduced to the book Alcoholics Anonymous almost immediately. I was introduced to the concept of a, a home group immediately. I was introduced to uh, the idea of having a sponsor and taking the 12 steps out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous um, that was written in 1938 and 39 um, immediately. And I was introduced to the idea of trying to help somebody right now not wait. And I took the steps out of the book. I turned my will and my life over to uh, the care of God. I was two weeks sober. It was not, I didn't understand any of it. I didn't uh, ask a bunch of questions. Well, I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of doubt. I had a lot of confusion. I was told that none of that mattered. What matters is taking the action. Take actions and live sober and your belief will come to you and you can't understand something until you actually try to do something. And wrote a fourth step and wrote out some resentments and some fears and some crazy conduct. <laughs> Shared that with a guy. Is that funny? <laughs> I don't think you were on it. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. The, uh, check in with me after me. The, um, and I shared it with a guy. I was four weeks sober. You gotta apologize for that nowadays, I guess, but it's just, it's just my experience. It was not the Sermon on the Mount. It it was not a, a complete analytical, thorough thing. Nobody, you know, nobody said, "Hey, it's not long enough. Go rewrite it. You're not being honest." The guy just listened to it, and he and he helped me. And it got at some at some stuff that was that I had done, and some resentments, and a, and a bunch of fears, and. It was sufficient. And what happened to me was I realized for the first time that I had done a poor job running my life. And I also realized that all these people I blamed my life on had done nothing but really try to help me. And I, you know, I, I, I shared it with a guy. It was, it was as best as I could do at the time. And I started making amends. And you know, I'm seven or eight weeks sober. I went down and turned myself into the courthouse for some pending charges. I, I, I called people that I owed money to. I went to places where I had, had bad checks. Didn't have the money to pay them back, but I made arrangements and told them I wasn't hiding from them anymore. All of them worked with me. And I, I started helping other people. I was one of the few guys that actually had a driver's license and a car and was young and I'd cry to my sponsor about my wife sleeping with my cousin or not coming back and he would say, don't you have a car? And I was like, yeah, he says, well, why don't you go to the halfway house and pick up some of those guys at the house and take them to the meeting? I'm barely a month sober. And it doesn't seem like a solution. I'd go pick those guys up, take them to a meeting. I'd listen to their, their craziness. I'd drop them off and I was glad to, to be who I was and where I was at. And, and that, that's how that works. <laughs> and so what happened was slow. You know, sometimes you hear people talk, and it sounds like we go from here to here just like that, and everything feels good. 
It, no, I mean, I thought I was going to, the first couple years I was sober, I thought I was going to die. I thought the world was just going to, like, evaporate me. I was, I was petrified with fear for, I mean, nonstop. I'd wake up in the morning and just, I mean, I didn't know how I was going to make it. But I still took simple actions because it looked like it worked for other people. And they told me that all I had to do was what they did and that I would get those results. And, I mean, that, that's, been, that's been my experience. I, me and my first wife got back together. I was sober about nine months. And we lost this house that we had. And we got back together. And we ended up getting the house back. And we, we both had jobs. And I, was, I, had, I had made... Uh, a bunch of a bunch of amends, and uh, it, it it looked like it was going to be a story, a fairy tale story, but it didn't end up that way. Uh, she, she finally she finally realized she liked other guys more than me. And, uh, we uh, we ultimately ended up getting a, getting a divorce. And I will tell you that even you know in sobriety and being I guess what we people say in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the world can get dark, and we can we can make some some poor decisions in life. I I, uh, I was in that. It was really just an unhealthy relationship, and you know, I didn't I, I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't have the power to to, to change that or to, to to make a different decision of them by myself. I started stealing money from work sober. Um, between two and four years sober, I don't recommend that. Um, and uh, what happened to me was I, I think because um, I was active in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was I was active in a home group, I, I was taking meetings into detoxes and, and into prisons, and um, I was not being completely honest with my sponsor because of not disclosing some of the things I was doing at work. But because I think I was in the middle of it, when, when I basically got ready and had enough, I, I told my sponsor the truth. And help was immediately provided. And so what, what happened was I ended up, I was suggested to do some pretty radical, what I thought were radical things. He told me I needed to file for a separation. And I'm like, well, love and tolerance is our code. I'm supposed to just, you know, try to get her back, take her back, and accept her. And anybody, any outsider appraising that situation would have known it was best for us to leave. But I couldn't see it. The sponsor helped me see the truth. He told me that I needed to go back to my employer making amends. And I was like, man, that's drastic. That's, it says in the step we do so except when it injures them or others, and I'm another. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on it, I can't. It embarrasses me to say I thought that, but I did, and uh, I really didn't believe it, but I did say it. And uh, he laughed, kind of like y'all just did. And uh, I, um, you know, I went back to my employer and made an amends. I, I, I basically turned myself in, and I thought for sure that they were going to fire me. I mean, I there was like no doubt about that. And I thought they might even press charges. They had, because we had fired people for less than what I did. And he um, he looked at me and he said he'd been forgiven for worse. And the best thing we can do is move on and forget about this. And I'm, of course, my first thought is, well, what, what did he do? If he was <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you've been 
stealing too? Or, <laughs> and uh, um, I thank God for that guy. He, you know, thank God for non-alcoholic friends. And I, I got, I filed for separation and got through a divorce with some, with some grace and dignity, no fighting or arguing. And you know that stuff happens to a lot of people. But I got through it differently than how I would have if I was not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got through it because of people in AA that had experience how to deal with stuff like that. I got through it because of principles and of the power that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I can tell you is that I've not stolen anything since then or I've not I've not treated a, a lady the way that I treated my first wife. And I you know I I stayed that company didn't fire me. I stayed there for a long time. And I always I, I like to share this story that because it, it's it's a simple story, but it changed the course of my life. During that same time, around that time, I I asked my sponsor if um, thanks. You know what? I appreciate that. Thanks. The um, I can take that whole thing down and not have to pee. <laughs> talking to Paige, my sponsor, and I made a comment to him that there was not a, there was not a lot written in the, the big book on steps six and seven. And I can remember saying, do we, don't we need to do something different? Or you know, read some other books? Or maybe you know, drop a rock? Or put some new glasses on? Or um, And he he said something it, it literally just it just changed my my outlook on stuff. And he said, Jerry says if there was more you could do, there'd be more written. Mm. And it just I know it sounds silly, but it just it just hit me like a I mean it was like a ton of bricks. Mm. And that your job is to just, he told me that your job is to, to give up and to be willing to change. And that if you're truly willing to change and to move on to something different, then the same God that got you sober, the same power that helped remove, remove that obsession will come into you and help you to heal from your fear of being in a not being in a good relationship and your fear of not having enough money and your dishonesty and that same power will help you with those things. And that you can't read in a book how to be honest. You can't listen to somebody else talk about their experience of being honest and you be honest. You, you just got to grow up and stop being, being a little kid and stop uh, giving lip services and actually take some actions. And it, it made sense to me. And I realized that I limit the power of God because I want to run the show in certain areas of my life. And I don't I think I can handle my money and a relationship better than the principles and the power. And what happened to me was I I mean I just I kind of I was giving eighty percent of my life to the program and to and to God and I was holding on to the you know, it seems like we always hold on to something to do with money or relationship. 
But I, I just, I, it was, it, it was surrendered. And you know, he told me that the the, the way that you're going to change is by practicing and applying steps 10, 11, and 12 in your life, and trying to actually continue to look at yourself and not other people, and continually trying to to ask God to give you the power to carry things out, and to try to practice a principle in everything that you do. And you can't stay on six and seven. That that's those are just uh, it's just a it's a question and it's a prayer. And you, you, they're activated by practicing 10, 11, and 12 in your life. And it, it changed my life when, when he told me that. And I, um, I stayed on with that company for about 24 years. Went from, from literally started trying to practice our traditions and our steps at work. And consciously taking God with me when I walked into the door at work instead of checking him in the parking lot. And I went from basically sweeping the floors and stealing money from to having a, a long career there and being an executive in the business. And I can't, that's AA, it's not me. I, um, I got remarried, stayed, uh, stayed single for a little while. I got remarried. And um, my younger brother, who ended up becoming a preacher, was in Afghanistan. He, he, he flew in from Afghanistan and married us. My sponsor and my dad were my best men. And there were uh, people from Alcoholics Anonymous there. And it, um, you know, me and my wife, we've never had a, we had one little squirmish not long after we got married, but we, 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 we don't fight, we don't argue. People challenge me on that, they don't think it's possible, but I'm just telling you that we, we, we don't always agree on stuff. Uh, but we've never done battle like I did with my first wife. And we don't try to change each other. That's not me. I'm a guy that wants to control and want to own stuff and people should do what I want them to do. And AA fixed that, changed that. And the most important thing, I guess, that, that's, that has happened to me is as a result of being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is that for, you know, for, I think all of us probably wonder why we're here. Or I know before I got sober, I always questioned, right, what's my purpose and, and what's going on? And I found that in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm so, it's just very clear to me today that, that I've been given a gift of sobriety. I've been given a, a, a way to to stay sober and to live a, a purposeful and useful life. And my, my prayer back to, to God and to the fellowship is through my willingness to help other people. And I'm a guy that believes I've been given a unique gift, just like our literature talks about, that I'm, that I'm uniquely qualified to help another person, and that, that, that that's my purpose. And I don't waver on that today. I don't wake up in the morning wondering what I'm supposed to do today. I don't wake up in the morning with my head spinning anymore. Well, it will sometimes. Um, but this morning I woke up, and the first thought that came to my mind was about a, a somebody that I used to sponsor that's going through a difficult time. And I, um, I immediately started praying for that person. And then I, I did a, a review and just kind of 
thought through my day and asked for inspiration and asked for guidance and asked for help and prayed for some more people. Alcoholics Anonymous taught me to do that. And so my purpose is to, to try to help other people today. And I'm not a guy that believes, believes Alcoholics Anonymous is a selfish program. I would challenge anybody to actually find that in our literature. Uh, it doesn't exist. It talks about being altruistic and it talks about being unselfish. And that, that, that it's certainly probably selfish in terms of when you first get sober, you got to do certain things to build a foundation and, to, and to, to get sober. But at some point, that should change to where this is not about me and me and my recovery, me and my program. Um, it's about what can I give back to somebody else that's suffering. Am I, am I turning around and looking behind me and trying to, to help the people that are behind me? And am I you know, looking at the people in front of me and, and still getting guidance and help from them? And so that's my, uh, that's my story. I'm a, I'm a guy this morning that I uh, appreciate my friends that came with me. And I appreciate all y'all being here. And, uh, you know, when I got here, I was just hoping to get a little bit of a little car and a job and wife would leave my cousin alone. <laughs> I, I like the story in the book, Keys to Kingdom, because that's what, that's what I've been given is Keys to Kingdom. Thanks.